Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church. Okay, so today I want to speak on a subject that isn't often addressed, and um, to me it's very personal and really important, something I've been living with uh, for quite a while, and I think in some ways really reflects me as a person and really reflects my life and who I am, so you kind of get a bit of a feel for me as I talk this through. But we live in a world that places a high value on strength and success. That's the world that we live in. We celebrate, don't we, great athletes, and we honor strong personalities. So, for instance, tomorrow we will be celebrating with the England team when they beat South Africa rugby. We will all be celebrating. Well, those of us who are... <laughs> okay, one or two of you. One or two... But even when, even, but you will admire the prowess of the English athletes. You will admire their strength. You will admire the tactics and the manager's amazing ability to turn it around. And you will have to admit that, boy, these guys have nailed it. So, you know, that's the world we live in. Okay. Fousey is prophesying against that. We're having a, 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 not a spelling bee, but a prophecy bee now. Okay. Who do you think said this? I'll give you a quote. You tell me who you think said this. My whole life is about winning. I don't lose often. I almost never lose. I don't like losers. Who do you think said that? Donald Trump. Exactly. Don't we know Donald Trump? I wish I had the hair and the voice and... We would have some fun. I used to do a lot of funny voices, but I've been told off so much I can't do them now. So, my whole life is about winning. I don't, like, I don't lose often. I almost never lose. I don't like losers. Um, dare I say the most powerful man in the world. Certainly the most outspokenly powerful man in the world, for sure. And so there is little time for those who are weak, who don't succeed in life. There's little time for people who are in poverty. There's little time for people who struggle to survive. And yet that probably makes up the bigger part of the population of the world. And this can be true in the church. I was really shocked. Um, I think it was earlier this year, the beginning of this year. I was chatting to a guy in the church who I know reasonably well. And um, he said something like this. He said... Rodney, I really struggle in the church here because the leaders kind of, you always present everything is so wonderful and so amazing that I feel pressure to be excited, but sometimes I'm not. Is there anything wrong with me? I thought, wow. I thought, I didn't know we portrayed that. And he was saying the pressure to be really excited and cheer everything and really, actually, I'm struggling. I'm finding it difficult. And I had to talk it through with him. And I said to him, I said, do you know what? You know, he, he's kind of like, in, in the midst of it, he kind of started questioning even his faith in the midst of that. Is there something wrong when I don't always get excited about all the things you, you guys are talking about? I said, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, you love Jesus, you're following Jesus, you're working out life. And it was an eye-opener for me that the culture that we can create is actually not a biblical culture. 
we can create something a little bit different because maybe of insecurities, I don't know, but we kind of gauge success by the number of cheers or the number of flags or the number of whatever. You know, the origin of this way of thinking is Greek. It's the Greek world. It's what Paul faced in a culture that honored Greek war heroes. But you know, Paul came a very different message. Not that of a war hero saving the day. His message was salvation through the death of a criminal nailed to a cross. It's the way the world saw Jesus. Criminals get nailed to cross. Losers get nailed to crosses. Jesus got nailed to a cross. Through that man, we win victory in the world. That was not the, great, the Greek way of thinking. But you know what? The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Says that somewhere. The Bible turns the world upside down and it values people rather than their achievements. And add, and in, but in the world, we kind of can get drawn into the value of achievement rather than people. So, what does weakness, power and weakness, that's the name of my talk, sorry, today. What does the weakness of God look like in your life? I want to take you there and make you think about it. And this morning, I want to look at an event in Paul's life that helps us understand how the weakness of God is at work in our lives. So let me read. I don't know. I have no idea if this is going to come up on the screen or not. It's 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 8. Um, I read from the NIV because I just think it flows easier, even if it's not word perfect. Um, Paul says, Therefore... In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why... For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me just pray. Father, please speak to us over the next 30 minutes. Please give us an insight into these words. Please give us the mind of Christ through the thinking of Paul. And Lord, I just pray that actually you would really help us to uh, finish here this morning with your uh, kind of like your endorsement of us wherever we are at. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I want to ask Thor four questions about this passage. Four thorny questions about this passage. There's a little joke for those of you that know me. Okay. One, why was Paul given a thorn? Why was Paul given the thorn? And you know what? In the, he answers this in the passage, although we need to unlock it. His answer is quite simple. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh. It's quite straightforward. What does conceited mean? It just means excessively proud of yourself. To stop me becoming puffed up with pride, if you like. But why, why write that? And, and we can only understand that as we look at the few verses that precede that. Because 14 years earlier, Paul had this amazing spiritual experience where he is caught up to the third heaven and he sees things and hears things that he's not even permitted to speak about. 
So we don't know what he sees and what he hears, but it's with that as a backdrop that he writes those words that we just read. So what does he say a little earlier to the Corinthians in the, in the two, three verses earlier? He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. This man was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. So that's the, that's, that's the context of Paul's writing. You see, visions are quite common in the Bible. You'll read the Bible. You read lots of visions. There's lots of visions all over the place. And they are especially relevant now in the age of the Spirit. Because this is what it says in Acts. Peter stands up quoting the prophet Joel. Your young men will see visions. The Pauls of this world will see visions. Your young men will see visions. They're not going to be a Paul. Your old men will dream dreams. So this is a characteristic of the age that we live in. It's a characteristic of, of life in the church is to get visions and dreams. It's right there. But here's an interesting thought. If you had a vision like Paul, how do you think it would affect your life? What do you think it would do? Because sometimes we crave visions, don't we? If only I had a vision. If only I saw what heaven is really like. If only I understood what life is going to be like when I pass to the next life. If only I got a vision of, of, of who, who God is like. What, what is the glory like? What would, what would it do for you? Would it help you to follow Jesus more wholeheartedly? That might be a natural thing that we would conclude. If I saw that vision, boy, I'd be sold out for Jesus. I would be number one disciple. Number one disciple. Or maybe it would help you resist sin more easily. Do you know what? I, if I just saw Jesus in his glory, that would really help me with all these things that keep coming and, 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 and niggling away at me that I know aren't quite right. I, it will help me push them all aside. Hey, hey, all I need, Jesus, is a vision of you. Well, this passage answers that question because the shocking news is this. Paul says that result of such a revelation was not deeper intimacy and purity. The result was pride and conceit. That's the result. <gasps> That's shocking. It's actually shocking. Think about it. And this is Paul writing. We, we greatly esteem Paul, and rightly so. And yet, this is the shocking truth about Paul. I had incredible vision, and it created in me pride. You see, the problem is not seeing visions. The problem is Paul's sinfulness. Having received the revelation, sin starts to work in his earthly body. And it produces pride. That's what the Bible teaches and that's what Paul testifies to. And Paul will begin to think, surely I'm special. God gave me a vision. <laughs> you didn't get the vision. I got the vision. Hey, I'm the one in the know. Do you know what? I must be God's special friend. He took me aside and gave me a vision. He didn't give you a vision. He gave me a vision. Can you see the way maybe Paul's mind would begin to play? I must be in favor with God because I saw something that nobody else heard. And, and I can't speak about it. No, 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 no. I can't speak about things un unable to utter. So, you know, don't, don't, don't even ask me. Just trust me. Pride is working in his life because his body is not fully redeemed yet. Can I say beware of people who boast about visions? Visions are not a sign of Christian maturity. They are not a sign of God's special favor. Neither are they a guide for anyone's moral character. 
Neither do they legitimize somebody's ministry. These are all traps that we can fall into when the big man or woman of vision appears on the stage. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't teach us that at all. But visions are given to encourage, to strengthen and prepare the church. So let's not rubbish visions. God says your, your young men will have visions. You know, It's going to happen. We've just got to get them in their proper place and, and use them to encourage and strengthen and build up. A bit like prophecy, really. But for Paul, the thorn was given to stop him becoming proud. So that's quite a shock, isn't it? Where did the, where did the thorn come from? Okay, where did it come from? He says, in order to keep me from, being, from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Ooh. Okay, we now know where it comes from. Hang on, we've got to unpack that. What does that mean? You see, Paul saw the timing of this fawn as no coincidence. These things are happening alongside each other. He sees it as something to keep him humble following his vision. And he does call it a messenger from Satan. But actually, there's more to the phrase than just the face value that we might think. Because if Satan was the author... Surely Satan would want to increase Paul's pride, not prevent it. So if the thorn comes to prevent him being proud, how could that have been from Satan? Because Satan wants you to become more proud. Satan wants you to think you are different from everybody else and kind of like some unique. Now let's get the balance right. You are unique. God loves you. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to rubbish that. You know, you are special. All of those things that we believe. But actually, it's true of all of us. So the devil would want Paul to become more proud, but the thorn is given to stop him from becoming proud. So there's something slightly amiss there when he calls it a messenger of Satan. And I think the answer is this, that God sometimes used Satan to accomplish his purposes. I think that's the answer. Although Satan and God will always, always work at cross purposes, they never have the same purpose in mind. Never, ever, ever. Satan always opposes God, every time. Okay? But sometimes, God and Satan want the same events to happen. I don't know if you've thought about this before. So, the obvious and clear example that we have in Scripture is the cross. Satan thought he was stopping God's purposes by killing Jesus. He thought, job done. Son of God, dead. God is being thwarted. But God was using the cross as his means to redeem mankind. So God outwits Satan. Satan thinks he's done something clever. But again, Satan's wisdom is foolishness. God's foolishness is wiser than man's or Satan's or anybody else's wisdom. And so, do you see, they want the same event, but they're coming from different angles. They have different purposes. And that's what's happening here with this thorn and Paul. So Paul is saying that although this thorn had a demonic origin, the bigger picture is God is the unnamed cause behind the thorn. Okay? And theologians call this the divine passive, where God is an unidentified cause for certain events. Which is an interesting thing, and you need to think about this. I've been thinking a lot about this recently. An awful lot, actually. 
And the fruit of Paul's life confirms the ultimate author of the thorn, doesn't it? It's the fruit. You know them by their fruit. Actually, the thorn is causing Paul to keep humble. So the fruit, you can tell. Well, okay, if that's the fruit, if godliness is the fruit, then God is the author. Even if it had something of a demonic origin somewhere. Can I just say, and this is a whole different sermon that I haven't written yet, which I want to write. God will use difficulties in our lives to shape us into his image. Please understand that. Please understand that. We are very quick to blame the devil for all the bad things that happen to us and thank God for all the good things that happen to us. Sometimes the good things that happen to us actually have more of a demonic origin than we think. And sometimes the bad things that happen to us, God is working in your character. And we need wisdom from God. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's why we can hear personally from God. We haven't got to go to a priest now to ask the question what's going on although it can be helpful to pray with people for sure there's nothing wrong with that and 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 discerning things together can be very helpful but actually sometimes the problems that you hit in life God is behind that because he's shaping you and he's changing you and he's working in your character. And there's something bigger going on in your life than this particular immediate situation because God is preparing you for eternity and he's making you into his image. And it takes a bit of work to make you into the image of God. I know that because I'm standing here and I can see you. And God is going to take time to work on you. It's going to take a long time. But you're sitting there looking at me thinking, boy, God has longer to deal with me than he has to deal with you. Because you're looking at me thinking, man, this guy really needs help. So I see that in you. You see that in me. Isn't it amazing how we can help one another in these kind of moments? There's a lot more to that. We'll, we'll, kind of, we'll come back in and dance with that theme a little bit more in a moment. But the third question, the thorny question I want to ask is, what was the thorn? Here's an interesting one. I cannot give you all the theories. It will take us too long. I will give you three that I think are probably the three most significant ones that we need to think about. First of all, I just want to give you the Catholic view. I think it's important, not just because it's the Catholic view and the Catholic Church represents a lot of Christendom around the world, but there's something about this view that we just need to understand. And the Catholic view is that the thorn was uncontrollable sexual desire and lust. That was Paul's thorn. He had a sexual desire and lust. That probably shocks many of you. It shocked me when I read it, but I'm trusting what I read. Um, But do you know what? So that's their view. So Paul's thorn is like, he just can't control himself. Gosh, this is what Paul says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. Is Paul going to boast about sexual weakness? I think not. I think not. What we read of Paul and know of Paul, he's never going to write that if the thorn is that. Okay? God, it's important this because it's, this is the th- point I want to make. God hates sin and will never be the author of sin. God is never the author of sin. Sin can be your own folly, your own drives in you that lead you to places you shouldn't go. Sin can certainly have a demonic temptation about it. Of course, we know that from the garden, from Genesis, and we see it right through the Bible. God is never the author of sin. And so therefore, sin is never our thorn in the flesh. My thorn, if, God, if I'm struggling with something and, and God is using it to shape my character, which is what we're talking about, he won't be the author of sin in my life to do that. Because he can't, that's not his nature. He hates sin. So secondly, the, the second possible 
And, and, and one of the very common views is the thorn was all Paul's enemies who opposed and persecuted him. So he's talking like a generic term that says, oh, the Jews have been coming against me, the Romans are coming against me, you know, the Gentiles, they, they think I'm an idiot, you know, the Greeks, they, they think I'm foolish, you know. They're all his enemies. But do you know what Paul talks about a single thorn? He talks about a single messenger rather than multiple messengers or thorns, which he would if they were enemies, so that's one comment to make. But also, Paul's enemies have been opposing him longer than the 14 years he'd had the thorn. So his enemies are opposing him right from the start. And opposition to the gospel is common to the apostles, but Paul describes his thorn as something uniquely given to him. So personally, I don't think that's the thorn. Many people have concluded that is the thorn. So I want to leave that one with you, but I'll give you the third one, which is the one that I think it is. All preachers always leave the one they think it is to last. I think maybe we should do that differently. Sometimes I should do the one I believe first, and then maybe do some ones I don't. I don't. Know. This is just a typical preach, this isn't it? Some suggest. So sorry, the third one. It was an in, it was an illness or injury. Paul had an, either an illness or an injury that was kind of like disabling him in some way. And some suggest it was even, it could even have been an eye condition that he describes in Galatians 4, which is an interesting theory. Um, this is what Paul writes to the Galatians. He says, though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt. I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. And so is it possible that Paul contracted this eye problem as a direct result of the blinding brilliance of the vision that he saw? which would therefore coincide with the 14 years. Actually, we don't know. We actually don't know. And very helpfully, this is what Sam Storm says, which is a real bit of wisdom. So I'll just read his quote, because he's wiser than me. He says this, In leaving the door open concerning the nature of the thorn, each of us are able to identify with Paul's struggle and to learn and grow from the way in which he yielded to the sovereignty and sufficiency of divine grace. So if Paul had identified the thorn, every time you, anybody has that, they say, oh, it's a thorn in the flesh, God's working. And everybody else that had other things would never be able to refer to that as a thorn in the flesh. I think, therefore, you would discard the God working. So I think Paul was incredibly wise in never stating it. So my fourth and last point, then we've got a very short conclusion is what fruit did it produce? Um, and this is kind of really the culmination of what I want to say. At first, Paul prayed for deliverance from this thorn. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. This was a very real problem in Paul's life. He was struggling with something quite definite. Three times he comes, not just a casual prayer, I don't think, but a wrestling prayer. Say, Lord, would you take it? And interestingly, God answers his prayer, but not in the way that Paul was hoping initially. Because instead of removing it, God answers the prayer by giving him two things. He doesn't take it away. He gives him two things instead. The first thing he gives is this. He gives him more grace. But he said to me, this is Paul speaking again, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what God said to him. He gave Paul more grace. You see, weakness is acknowledging your frailty 
an inability to do anything in your own strength. Weakness kind of takes us to the end of ourselves, doesn't it? Weakness can be a lot of things. It can be physical weakness. It can be psychological weakness. It can be economic weakness. It can be social weakness. There are many forms that weakness takes. But do you know, weakness allows God to come and display the life of Jesus in you. That's what it does. Weakness is like a stage. Imagine this stage is weakness. And I'm used to the stage. I'm happy to be here because I've got my notes. If, if they suddenly all crashed, I'd be panicking. Just, but they're not going to crash. I've got some paper copy just in case over there. But I, I, I'm okay with the stage. But actually, you don't like being on a stage, do you? Who likes being on a stage when the spotlight is on you? And everybody's looking at you. People don't like that, particularly when it's the spotlight is on your weakness. The spotlight is on your, the things that you can't do, the things that you're struggling with. Who likes that? But you know what? The stage enables Jesus to come and stand in front of you and in front of that weakness and say, look at me instead. And you can stand behind Jesus. You're still there with your weakness. You're on the stage, but he comes and takes center stage. It's a beautiful thing. And as we embrace the working of God through our weakness, his grace is released in a new way. Um, I won't go into any detail at all about this, but even as a family, we have known incredible weakness in the last 18 months. We had some news, which I'm not going to tell you about. It was terrible news, which really crushed us and, 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 and was a real attack on us in our lives. And that happens to leaders. Leaders are no different from anybody else. We go through struggles and problems. We get bad news, like you get bad news. There's no difference there, because we're all being trained by God. But do you know what? God's grace and power has triumphed, and it's shone through in ways that we couldn't really imagine as we faced up to some things that were going on. You see, like Paul, it's not wrong to plead with God to remove your thorn. That's not wrong it's okay. Sometimes God will remove things that you're saying, this is really crippling me, Lord. I mean, an example would be like healing, you know, maybe you've got a sickness and an illness. Please do keep asking God to pray for healing. Unless he says, no, I'm not going to heal you. I'm going to give you more grace. At that point, probably you need to readdress your prayers and realign your prayers. And I think there are moments when God says, Actually, I'm not going to heal you. I'm going to give you more grace. Because I think that's what's going on here. So there's a, there's a biblical example for us. Um, because it is possible that the, the thorn is the very thing God is using you to make you more like Jesus. And why in the end would you pray to take away the thing that makes you look like Jesus? Actually, we need to learn sometimes to embrace weakness. We, don't, we shouldn't shy from it. We shouldn't hide it. We shouldn't you know, pretend, but actually we shouldn't be crushed by it because we know God is at work in our lives. You know, we're made more like Christ, not in the mountaintop experience, it's in the dungeon and the valley. That's where you become more Christ-like. You know, Joseph, we'll talk about Joseph being Christ-like because I think he is a, he's an image of Christ in the Old Testament. 
He was shaped more like Christ in that dungeon, in the bottom of the well, in fleeing Potiphar, in the prison, in the being overlooked in prison. That's what shapes him. Not the moment he comes on center stage, second only to Pharaoh, and is able to dish out the food and, and command a nation. We look at that. Whoa, Lord, I wish I had that. Well, are you prepared to go through the dungeon? Are you prepared to be thrown in a well by your brothers? See, the Bible deals with some very real issues in our lives. And it is the dungeon of the valley that will shape you. But I said God gave Paul two things. And there's something else he gave. And he gave Paul more power. Ooh, we like power, don't we? Well, just bear this in mind. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I would delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You want to be strong in God? He says delight in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. Man, that's a heavy order. I just want the power of God. I just want to lay hands and see the sick healed. Paul says there's a bit more. Because God's working in your life and shaping you in ways that only he knows how to do. So Paul's testimony is that Christ's power rested on him in weakness. You know, rested, it means pitching your tent. Isn't that interesting? It's the same word, pitching your tent or dwelling among people. Does that remind you of something? Reminds you of an old covenant story, doesn't it? He pitches his tent. So when we are weak, Jesus pitches his tent and dwells with us in our affliction and in our weakness and struggles. Boy, if I'm weak and I've got to camp with somebody, it's going to have to be Jesus. He's the one I want to camp with. And he promises to come and pitch his tent in your life. And it releases power in our lives. And I believe only in times of weakness do we truly know the fullness of Christ's power. We think the fullness of Christ's power comes in some kind of ministry moment. I don't believe it does. I think a ministry moment can be the fruit of something. But Christ's power is really released when Jesus pitches his tent with us in affliction. I've very nearly finished. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we may know the power of Christ at work in our lives. He says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. So in your weakness, Christ, Christ releases a power greater than your circumstances, greater than the power that opposes you. So whatever the power is that is opposing you, he will release a greater power. He may not take the thorn away, but he will display a grace and a power greater than that which you're facing because it's the resurrection power of Christ on display. Here's my conclusion. The band can come up whenever they want. Um, do you know what? So much contemporary Christianity involves avoiding hardship and weakness at any cost because we want to look strong. If I can avoid hardship, if I can avoid difficulty, I will look strong. I'll be the man of God, or maybe you'll be the woman of God, you know? Because, oh, I know, he, he's not weak. He's, he, you know, there's no struggles in his life. That's, that's getting the spotlight on us. It's going to make me look strong. But if we persevere through our weakness, if we allow God to work in our lives, then like I said earlier, Jesus 
takes center stage and he is displayed as strong. So the question is really, who do you want to look strong in your life? Do you want to look strong or do you want Jesus to look strong? You know the answer <laughs> that you should agree with. You know, it's not just okay to be weak. I want to say it is okay to be weak. It's not just okay to be weak. It's what it means to take up a cross and follow Jesus daily. Stand together. I should have said a little earlier, I'm going to call people forward. Um, and I'm going to do that in a moment. And I want you to come forward. If you kind of resonate with that in any way, if you want to say, Jesus, I am weak. I have weakness. I need you to come and pitch your tent. I need you to come. I need more grace. I need more strength. What I'm going to do is I'm not actually going to pray for you. That's too passive on your part. I'm going to pray with you. So we're going to come forward and then we're all going to pray a prayer together. And we're going to just invite Jesus into our weakness. And ask him just to come and minister to us. And it could be a very powerful moment when you do business with God. Um, but there's no pressure. If you don't want to do this, that's absolutely fine. You can stay where you are and just pray for the people that come forward. So if you feel like, do you know what? I want to invite Jesus into my weakness right now. Why don't you just step forward, come to the front, just make a line down here. And I'm just going to pray over, I'm just going to pray with you, sorry, and pray a prayer with you. Try and spread out along to the sides as much as we can. Maybe, guys, at the front, step forward. Make you, you all come forward one. Come forward one here at the front. And then that just gives a bit more room for more people just to fill in. Because there is something powerful about responding to God. You're making a public response, but it's not actually in front of other people. It's really in front of God. You're saying, God, I'm here. I need you. I really need you. Wonderful. Why don't you hold out your hands to God or do whatever you want to do is a kind of like just a way of you engaging God. Sometimes the physical act of doing something is really helpful. And I'm just going to pray a line of a prayer. And I just want you to repeat this out loud, all just all together. It's going to be a simple little thing, nothing complicated. But it's, it's just the opportunity for you to invite Jesus now into your weakness because you want him to take center stage, not you. So here we go. Jesus, thank you that you are Lord over my life. Jesus, thank you that you are Lord over every circumstance in my life. Jesus, thank you that you are bigger than every situation in my life. I just want to acknowledge my weakness this morning. I'm not ashamed to say before you, Jesus, I'm weak. 
but I know you are strong. Jesus, I invite you to come now. Come into my weakness. Pitch your tent. Take center stage. Shape me. Make me more like you, Jesus. So that the work of God in my life can glorify you. Amen. Wonderful. I'm just going to hand over now to Fuzi and let him take it from here. What wonderful. Can we just thank Rodney for the word that he brought to us? I think it's amazing. Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church. Thank you.